Will you please stand? Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you when away. I beg do that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect toward some people who think that we live in the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war, war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, we have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought, we make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. You are judging by the appearances if anyone can conflict that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ as much as they do. So even if they boast somewhat freely about the authority of the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tear you down, I will not be ashamed of it. You might know that tomorrow is the 4th of July. I see everybody here, most of you are dressed accordingly. I see red, white, and blue. I tried my best, red, white, and blue pants. There are a few things that are helpful when it comes to celebrating the 4th of July. Of course, one of the most important things is probably being happy that you're an American. I have a piece of art, one of my favorite American artworks, Washington crossing the Delaware as an image. It's very striking. I love this picture. First president, the flag crossing over, kind of an idea of retreat, but knowing that in the end, they're going to come to victory. I'm glad to be a citizen of this country. I'm thankful to be living in America. There are a lot of freedoms and benefits we get to experience as Americans in this country that most people throughout all of history have never been able to experience or enjoy, and I am thankful for that. And this country is an ever-evolving experiment. It's far from perfect. It was far from perfect at its outset, but it's what we get. It's what we have And we get to continue to make adjustments and grow together as a country and learn and benefit from the blessings that God has given us. Also, of course, important to celebrating the 4th of July, you probably should love fireworks or at least not be scared by them. I've been to some great fireworks shows in my time. I've even participated and set off a few fireworks in my court, in my street. The court we used to live in before we moved up here, we would do a big fireworks show where everybody would buy fireworks. We told people, and the neighbor who lived just to the right of us didn't come out right at the beginning as we were lighting fireworks to help us celebrate. But then towards the end, he came out, and he had bought the hugest firework that you could buy. And he's like, this is your grand finale. And he put it out there, and we lit it, and we probably watched that thing for like 20 minutes. Going all over the place, and and that was great. Fireworks are impressive and beautiful, and we like watching them as we celebrate our nation. But the truth about fireworks is 
they're kind of short-lived. We light them off. They give us joy and excitement for a moment. But then they go away. I once was with a friend, and we were messing with some fireworks in his front yard, and we had one of those ground blooms. And we thought, oh, it would be fun. Hey, let's put like a car on the fire side of it to see what would happen and try to melt that car, as boys do. So we taped it to it and we lit it off. Well, what we didn't realize is we had lit it to the other side. And so when it tried to spin, it wasn't balanced. It didn't spin. It rolled over and it actually like lifted off of the ground. We were like excited and scared, but then the fire went out and it hit the ground and it was done. However proud we are to be citizens of this country, and we have great reasons to have pride in our country, in the grand scheme of time, this nation's going to be about as short-lived as some of the fireworks that we get to watch. Ancient Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, the Aztecs, the Mayans, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire... As important as it seemed to the people living in those times as their nations and cultures were, we now just get to go and visit the ruins of those countries and nations. However, and more importantly today, as much as we are looking forward to celebrating the 4th of July tomorrow, we are not gathered here right now in this moment to celebrate America. We are gathered here in this moment for a very different purpose, for a more eternal purpose, to celebrate an eternal identity that is in each and every one of us. While we all have come here as Americans, we've, many of us have come here dressed up in our red, our white, and our blue, and this is what we look like in our appearance That is not what should define us here in this moment today. Today, we've gathered for worship. And that, I think, is what Paul has been taking great pains to make clear in his letters to this church in Corinthians. And a point that we can examine deeper through the scripture for today that was read by Aurora. And ultimately, I hope that we can get around to understand this point as we continue to move through this Church Alive series, that if you walked away with anything today, I'd want you to walk away with this point. That a church alive lives in humility, empowered by God for the spiritual battle that we are all in together. A church alive lives in humility, empowered by God for the spiritual battle that we are all in together. Paul opens up this passage that was read today. He says, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, Paul, who am timid when face to face, but bold towards you when away. And he talks about that how they have judged him by the standards of the world. Have you ever found yourself in a place where it felt like you didn't belong? Or you weren't up to the standards, whether spoken or unspoken, of where you were at, and somehow you didn't fit in? In school, I wasn't much of a sporting type I played soccer up until about fourth grade and then just kind of walked away from any kind of organized sports, just played for fun with my friends on the playground. I had this one friend in high school, though, in sophomore year, he said, we should play football together. 
let's go to the meeting, like, let's play football. I'm like, oh, okay, like, good friend, like, let's, let's go check that out. I went into kind of the orientation meeting for football, took one look around and was like, I don't belong here. These are not my people. I was a speech and debate and drama kid. There was no way I was going to survive in football. And this was made even more awkward as one of the first times I met Courtney's dad. He played football all the way through high school. And he joined the Air Force, went to the Air Force Academy, and played football for the Air Force Academy. One of the first times I met him, we sat down. He's like, what sports did you play in high school? I didn't, I didn't play any sports. I was in speech and debate. It was probably a kid you beat up in high school. This is what I think is going on for the church in Corinth. They are trying to follow a way that doesn't fit into the standards of the world that is around them at that time. They're starting to feel like they don't belong and they might be adjusting themselves to fit in a little bit better. What did the city of Corinth look like? Corinth was a rich and wealthy city because it sat at the crossroads of the eastern part of the Roman Empire and the western part of the Roman Empire at a very essential and tiny spot where if you wanted to get any goods from east to west or west to east, you would more than likely have to go through Corinth. And if you can think about the giant port and trade cities in the world, maybe like San Francisco or Boston here in America, there's a lot that goes on in those port cities. You come into port, you're going to trade goods, your boat lands, all the sailors get off the boat, they're going to amuse themselves in various ways while they're off the boat waiting for their goods to be counted and sold. Corinth was a city full of money and all the things that come along with being that type of city. There's an ancient Greek proverb that says, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. Means that once you get there, it's going to be very different than you thought it was. Plato would actually use the term a Corinthian girl as a euphemism to refer to a prostitute. So that the things that were going on in Corinth by the standards of the world was very different than what the church in Corinth was trying to live by. What was important to the people of Corinth was how you looked. What was, how much money did you have? What was your appearance? What status were you? And this began to creep its way into the church as they began to think more highly of those who looked bold, who appeared bold, who could speak boldly, and who could measure up to the standards of the city around them. And they had jokingly referred to Paul as being timid when face-to-face. Why, why would Paul have been perceived as timid? We read his letters. They seem very strong and well-worded. Paul, who actually was just a simple tent maker, probably dressed accordingly to be as a simple tent maker. Somebody talking about people who worked with their hands in the Roman Empire said that they were pretty unimportant in ancient society. They were badly educated, horribly poor, and had to work from dawn until dusk with their hands to eke out a living. The upper classes despised them because they were just one step above slaves and beggars. Anyone who had to work with their own hands for a living was a social 
non-entity. And no one with any class would do anything that was manual. So Paul comes into this rich and wealthy city as a tent maker. Somebody who works with his hands and was seen as a social non-entity. But he comes bringing the message of the gospel. Paul was very odd by Corinthian standards on these two accounts. He was a tent maker who didn't ask for any money for his teaching. Which was standard too. If you stood up and taught in one of the public squares after you were done teaching, it would be expected that people would just come give you money for what you taught. And Paul specifically says in his letters that I have not asked you for money. So for the Corinthians, by their standards, he doesn't appear very bold when face-to-face, as if they're considering it as the world does. But Paul is continually trying in his letter to adjust the Corinthians' perspectives, that it's not about how he looks. It's not about what, what job he does. It's not about living up to the standards of this world, but he's trying to get them to understand who he is and the message of the gospel in light of the kingdom of God. I have a video here that might help us understand this a little bit more. It's from The Bible Project, one of my favorite websites. They've done videos describing all the books of the Bible, and they've done specific themes. And this is a, is a piece from a video that they did about the kingdom of God. So watch this for a minute. Jesus saw himself as the messenger bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom. It needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom. Now, Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high-ranking Roman officer, and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had, that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was the king. The upside-down nature of the kingdom. Paul is appealing by the humility and gentleness of Christ, which were not virtues to be had in the Roman Empire. They're not bold and powerful. But as in this story demonstrates that the kingdom of God is not about being bold. It's not about being powerful. It's about loving your enemies. And when the centurion comes to Jesus, the centurion who had all the power and boldness and authority of the culture of the day, bows before Jesus and calls him Lord. This is what Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to understand. Because it's demonstrated in Jesus' life through this story and what Paul is appealing to here that the characteristics of a life lived according to the standards of the kingdom of God and the gospel is a life of humility and gentleness as Jesus has demonstrated. Jesus gets down on the floor to wash his disciples' feet, acting as a servant, taking off his robe. When a lady who's caught in adultery is brought before Jesus and thrown at his feet, 
And he's asked to condemn her. He instead says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And when everybody walks away, he looks at the woman and says, woman, where are your accusers? They're gone, she says. And he says, go and sin no more, neither do I condemn you. It's not these bold actions and displays of power and authority that should define us. It's not being bold in front of other people, forcing them and bending them to our will that we should get what we want and that defines us in the kingdom of God. Because that's not what Jesus resorted to. That's not what Paul resorts to here. It's actions that will make no sense by the standards of the world that we live by in the kingdom of God. And especially comes to play when we come across people that we don't agree with. Like Paul is demonstrating here in this letter, there are people in the church that don't agree with him and that he doesn't agree with either. And he's trying to appeal to them to live a better way, to live the way that he had taught them, the way of the gospel. And as he continues, he says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ, and we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. What are the standards of the world when it comes to waging war? All we have to do right now is turn on our TV to watch how the war in Ukraine is going. I have one picture for that. In a real war, as we can watch this playing out, war is carried out boldly, strongly. You want the people that you're fighting against to know that you're more powerful, to weaken them. It's a show of force and strength, but there's also this element of dehumanization required. You have to see the person on the other side as something other than you, as something different than you. You have to perceive them as almost less than human so that you can shoot that artillery shell across at them and not think of them as a brother or sister. In a more subtle way, I think this plays out in smaller ways for each and every one of us every day. Turn on your TV. Scroll through social media. And you don't have to look long before someone is calling someone else an idiot a fool, a snowflake, a heretic, a sheep, all in regards to something they believe, something they've said, or some kind of political leaning. And it's so easy to get sucked into. It's so tempting because in the moment it feels good. I'm going to make you, I'm going to call you an idiot, and that makes me feel better. But this is what Paul is trying to shake us awake here when he says we don't wage war as the world does. He wants to remind us how we in the church fight our battles. What are we equipped with in our struggle? It's not any worldly weapon, he says. And they're not weapons of our own doing or our own making, but we are equipped and empowered by God. If you go through some of other, Paul's other letters, you get bigger, more fleshed out descriptions of what we fight with. In Romans 13, 12, he says we fight with weapons of light. As a Star Wars fan, I'm very excited about that. 
fight with lightsabers. In Ephesians 6, chapter, 10, chapter 6, verses 10 through 17, he lays out the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, he talks about that our weapons are faith and love and hope and salvation, like in the armor of God in Ephesians. They're not weapons of the world, but they're weapons empowered by the divine, empowered by God. And is our fight against people, against other image bearers? No, Paul says. Our fight is against strongholds, arguments, pretension, thoughts, and disobedience. Our goal is to liberate people from the powers of sin and darkness in the world by sacrificially loving as Jesus did. Very famously in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus is taking his first steps of his ministry, he enters the synagogue to read from the scroll. And he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 61, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is talking about freedom. Freedom from oppression. Freedom from sin. My favorite early church father, John Chrysostom, says this, For our weapons are not of the flesh. For what sort of weapons are of the flesh? Wealth, glory, power, fluency, cleverness, circumventions, flatteries, hypocrisies. Whatsoever else is similar to these but ours are not of this sort. But of what kind are they? Mighty before God. All of those examples that John Chrysostom lays out are examples of how the world wants to fight, how the world wants to do battle. But our weapons are weapons that are given by God and are mighty before God. What might this look like played out in real life? I have a really good example for you. One of my favorite people of all time I've learned about. He was a World War II chaplain, and his name was Francis Sampson. I have a picture of him here. He was a Catholic priest, and when World War II broke out, he enlisted to be a paratrooper in the 101st Airborne Division. A paratrooping chaplain. You can actually, he has a book out, and he's lovingly referred to as the Paratrooper Padre. As an unarmed chaplain, he parachuted into D-Day on June 6, 1944. He landed behind enemy lines in a river, cut himself free from his parachute, and found his way to a local farmhouse that had been set up as a place to care for wounded soldiers and began to help care for the soldiers, the American soldiers that were there. Nearby, Germans would launch an attack on the farmhouse, and all the American soldiers retreated, leaving the wounded behind, but Francis remained, tending for the wounded soldiers. The Germans would eventually take over the farmhouse, and they captured Francis and the soldiers that were left there, and they took him off to march him to an imprisonment camp. As he was being marched away, one of the German officers, who was also a Catholic, identified that Francis was also Catholic. And had him released and set free. Francis, 
went back to the farmhouse that had now been overrun by Germans and was being set up as a German hospital to care for German wounded. And he went back to the farmhouse and cared for wounded German soldiers. Francis would survive World War II. He would end up serving in Korea. And he would die after a long life of cancer at the age of 83 on January 28th, 1996. Inscribed on his tombstone are the words, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. As an unarmed chaplain, he parachuted into D-Day. To be an example of God, to serve God, to not fight by the standards of the world, but to fight with the weapons that he had. He went in loaded with the armor of God. He loved those that he was not supposed to. He loved enemies. This is how we make our stand against the power, strongholds, arguments, and pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. We do things not by the standards of the world. And I think the best part of this that Paul gets to in the end of this passage is that we are not alone. He says, You are judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. If we're going to judge by appearances alone, we're going to very easily end up being divided, much like the Corinthians and much like the Roman culture of the time. You had those at the very top of society, men, wealthy people. Then you had those at the bottom, women, slaves, and they were never supposed to mix. Yet Paul points out that those who belong to Christ can't be judged by appearance alone. By appearances, sure, I would be a horrible football player. But when we are in Christ, our weaknesses become strengths. What we don't have becomes an area where God's power can be made known. We can find a place to fit in even when we feel like we don't. Pain, suffering, death, and the realities of life are not evidence that God has abandoned us but they can be transformed and redeemed as they were in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. As I look out across this room, I'm sure for many of you, there's no reason that we would ever have met (laughs) by the standards of the world. Yet here we are. Because Christ has brought us together. The goal is this, and what Paul ends the passage, that the goal is for building you up rather than tearing you down. When by worldly standards, Paul had every reason to walk away from the Corinthians. They hadn't listened. They insulted him. They called him timid. They said he was weak. But Paul instead chooses to build up and encourage the Corinthians to remain united as a church. Because God didn't give up on Paul. God had every reason to give up on Paul. He killed Christians. Yet he reached out to him and changed his life. 
And because God doesn't give up on us, Jesus doesn't give up on us. Jesus didn't walk away from frustrating disciples. I've been reading a book lately called The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. And it has this quote in it. It says, If we are pierced, what do we bleed? Do we bleed forgiveness, love, and grace? Or anger, hatred, and domination? That's the way of the world. If we are pierced, anger, hatred, domination, giving up, walking away. Or the way of the church that Paul is encouraging Corinthians and us thousands of years later, do we bleed forgiveness, love, and grace? This is our message as Christians. Our foundation is not in the ways of the world, not defined by the nation we happen to find ourselves in at this moment in time, not by a constitution, not by the Declaration of Independence, not the platforms of our chosen political party. We're not defined by what we wear to church, not what we drive, how much money we have in our bank account, not how old we are. It's one of the reasons I'd asked Aurora to read today. A nine-year-old child talking about we don't wage war like the world does. We don't use the weapons of the world. We don't judge by appearances. A church alive, like the point I wanted to get across, says lives in humility, empowered by God for the spiritual battle that we are all in together. The central part of that is Christ and the gospel that we get to experience today around this table. This table is not a bold or a grand table. It's not a huge table setting like you might find around some Thanksgiving tables. It's not a great barbecue that some of us might be celebrating tomorrow. Simple. Simple in elements, bread and wine. Simple in its invitation that all who follow Christ, regardless of who you are, where you're from, what you look like, what you wear, how much money you have in your pocket, you are welcome here if you follow Christ. Yet in its humility, in its simpleness, and in its accessibility, this table is truly a bold statement that stands against all of the standards of the world. Like Peter said in his first sermon in the book of Acts after the day of Pentecost, he says, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. All reasons that the world would have given up on Jesus because he was crucified as a criminal. But Peter continues, But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. What Peter preached is the bold claim that we stand here today in worship proclaiming as well. This is what we as a church stand for. This table is what we as a church should be united around. Is the great King of glory seated on high in the heavens? Oh, Jesus.
Jesus, you alone. 